Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Literacy View. Um, we have a breaking news episode. Uh, we're actually meeting 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So this is a late one for some of us. And um, But we thought it was that good that we had to bring it to you quickly. So this all started on X, which was Twitter. And so I'm still going to call them tweets. And it started when Tiffany put up um, a tweet that talked about conflating level books with predictable texts. Um, we have Tiffany Peltier here. And uh, we. this is the third time we've had Tiffany. And we love her. And we keep bringing her <laughs> back because she has so many wonderful things to say. And we love Wiley Blevins, who also is with us. And we brought him back. And to have these brilliant minds together is just fantastic. And like I said, it started with Tiffany's tweet. So I'll, I'll go on. And she said, level readers are great for building fluency. However, a subset of level texts, known as predictable texts, are not great for building decoding skills and should not be used in kindergarten for teaching phonics. And then Wiley responded, we need to do a virtual roundtable discussion about this. There is so much research misinterpretation and misunderstanding happening now. It's an important topic needing clarification. Well, that's when we said, okay, let's do it right here on the Literacy View. Of course. Let's introduce our special guests. Tiffany is a research scientist in the Collaborative for Student Growth at NWEA. She earned her PhD in learning science at the University of Oklahoma and her master's in reading and bachelor's in early childhood education from Texas A&M University. Now, Wiley Blevins has been around for a while, and I have to tell you, you know, we're the same age, Wiley. I, I think young. we are. Yeah, we are. We're... You look me up. <laughs> no, we're the same age. I think so we, we are. We both been I looked up Wiley last, last night, too. I think, <laughs> well, I, think, I think I let it slip that I've been in education 37 years, and a couple people gasped to the audience because it's hard to believe, but yeah. It is hard to believe. Wiley, still I know we're the good. same age. I know. So um, you've written, uh, how many books now, Wiley? Can you keep sure. up? About You're not even sure. That's how many that you don't even know how many. That's a lot. Okay. But your latest book is different, Differentiating Phonics Instruction for Maximum Impact, How to Scaffold Whole Group Instruction <laughs> so all students can access grade level content. And so we're so excited because that's going to tie right in to the things that we're discussing this evening. So let's kick this off with Tiffany's tweets because she started this all. And there were a lot of comments, Tiffany. Not everybody was loving what you were saying. Really? So Tiffany started a Twitter storm, huh? I think so. So 
kind of jump in, Tiffany, and tell us where this came from. Like, what made you post about this in the first place? Oh, we're getting the backstory. I want the backstory. I want the. I don't know about this. (laughs) (laughs) You don't don't have to mention names or anything, but just what provoked you to put this out there? Because you put up about three different tweets about this. And I just thought it was so interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I can't, I'm not at liberty to say the details of what caused it, but I will say I've just noticed a trend in states' rubrics and the way they're adopting curriculum and um, they're trying to do their best to follow these practices that are aligned with the science of reading but because of some of the rubrics they're using or the way that they're um, evaluating some of these curricula, um, there's buzzwords, right? So we all hear these buzzwords and we're like, this means that it's not a good practice or this means that it is a good practice instead of actually looking deeper. And so one of those things that I've noticed is that people refer to leveled readers. And as soon as they hear the term leveled readers, they think, well, that's not a good practice. Stay away, like stay away from this. That's balanced literacy, right? So that's kind of where it came from. So I can kind of understand that based on where we are and where we're coming from, right? So there are, you know, a lot of negative um, attributes related to this, but you clarified that you were really talking about predictable text. And so that's a very interesting differentiation. So I'm going to go to Wiley and then we'll bounce it back to Judy. So Wiley, when you heard what Tiffany was saying, right away, you said, we need a round table for this. Why? Why do you think we need to discuss this? Well, I'm glad to hear the backstory because, you know, I do a lot of consulting with publishers and the the state evaluation criteria and district evaluation criteria is causing a lot of um, problems because one of the things that we're, I always say, we're we're the best at in education is surface learning and overgeneralizing and misinterpreting. And so everyone's kind of operating up here and not going deeper. And so there are a lot of things in these criteria that are being interpreted in a specific way and publishers are being forced to respond in ways that they might know aren't the best. But these are enormous gatekeepers for publishers. I mean, publishers get criticized a lot, but people don't realize they have massive gatekeepers. The State Boards of Education criteria the, the district evaluation committee, you know, people like Ed Reports and other people who are reviewing, they have to respond to that. You know, they've invested 30, 40, 50 million dollars. If they don't do X, they can't sell their books. So they'll come to me and say, we're being asked to do X or we're being criticized this. And I'm like, why are you being asked to do that? And it makes no sense. There's no, they're like, well, this is how it's being interpreted by these gatekeepers. And so that's causing a lot of problems. And we could talk about even more than just the, the whole level texting. But we, we're to the point right now that if, if reviewers see a word in a kindergarten book that can't be fully sounded out, they think the whole program's garbage. 
And there are people who can't sell their powers because of that. So like yes. a regular high frequency word, a story it's word, like it's open it's, up. So Tiffany wants a cheers button. Yeah, they go straight to that's three queuing. They say this is three queuing, and you're like, that's not what three queuing. And there's no research. There's no, and I'm a huge advocate of decodable text. I wrote a whole book about them. I love decodable text for what they are and when they're to be used. But there's no research that says it has to be a hundred. In fact, there's research that warns us against it. And like, like I work with a lot of multilingual learners. If you take out those high frequency words, it doesn't sound like English. Like how disastrous is it for a child to learn to read? And it doesn't even sound like English. Do you know what I mean? The occasional story word to make it interesting. Publishers aren't allowed to put those in now because, you know, it's going to be someone's going to disapprove and they'll lose, you know, $30 million. And the thing is now that we're in this knowledge building uh, curriculum sort of mindset, how wonderful for us to put some of those knowledge building words and those decodables and have them richer and meatier. Like it's a perfect opportunity to do these things. So it's really frustrating for me because you know the 80% is totally made up. We don't really know. And we don't know for what, what uh, student population. And then there's this whole concept of bridging text. Like when do we wean children from it and how we move in towards all that? Like there's so many deep conversations that need to be had and so many books in our classrooms that can serve the needs, the wide range of needs of students. And we're, we're looking at it in such a simplistic viewpoint and one that isn't completely connected to what we know from the research. So when I saw her tweet, I was like, Oh gosh, I wish people would talk more about this because it is very frustrating. Well, I think you two see eye to eye based on what I'm hearing. So that that's um, something that I, I think you, both of you are in the field, researching, learning, sharing. Judy, as someone in the trenches, Wiley talked about the gatekeepers, right? So you have the publishers as the gatekeepers. And you and I see each other as truth seekers. I I do, yeah. Right? So part of this show, we pride ourselves on trying to get to the bottom, to the truth, even if it's painful for some people and even if some people are going to throw rocks at us. The point is that sometimes we have to, as you said, Wiley, get off the surface level stuff, go deeper and try to get to the bottom of this. How do you perceive, Judy, what you're hearing from Tiffany and Wiley in the schools? Any Is it ringing true that there is... Um, you know, a misunderstanding out there about how to use the decodables, how long to use the decodables, are level books taboo? Is it understood that we're really talking about maybe predictable books? Are we talking about not keeping kids in levels? You know, like, are these conversations happening? Tell us about what's going on. All right. So this is one of my favorite topics. I am so excited um, to be here to speak about this topic. Faith, you know, I have a long history with both leveled leveled books and with decodables now. But my history and my experience was more with leveled literacy. Everybody knows by now that I was misreading recovery. That was my life. Um, it's a part of my life that I'm very proud of. I'm not one of those people that blames myself, hates myself. I actually love myself 
that I got trained in something that was, you know, it was a very special experience, right? I was doing lessons behind glass. I was getting feedback continuously. I was sitting near children and learning how to watch them hold a pencil and learning how to give specific feedback. And so much of that life did tie into structured literacy. However, looking back now at that time period, it's amazing that I'm able to say that I'm no longer really connected to level A, B, C, D, E books at all. Um, some of those books were my favorite. There was one that was called Kitty Cat. I mean, I think I ordered maybe four copies of it on Amazon. It's uh, it's a Rigby book. I was very attached to my Rigby's. The stories were fun and it felt exciting. But, you know, it took me a couple of years to get to the point to realize a lot of those books were patterned. So the kids knew what was coming next. I like mom. I like dad. I like potatoes. I like lobster. I, well, you know, like, and, you know, a colleague of mine a couple of years ago when I was on the universal literacy team, which was now abolished, unfortunately. I don't know why, because we were doing the science of reading years and years ago, but nobody wanted to listen. But anyway, a colleague said to me, she's like, Judy. She's like, if you took any of those words off of the, out of the book and put it on a piece of paper without any pictures, would a kid be able to read that word or decode it? And that was almost like an aha moment for me. I'm like, wait a minute, that totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's a great likelihood that they wouldn't. But you know what? The truth is, this is what's going on in schools, because I'm in schools every day, right? I'm going to be back there tomorrow on my 622 Metro North, back in the building by 730. The truth is everybody's talking about this topic. I mean, this topic is hot. Schools are just starting to realize the need for decodables. Some schools are further in their journey with decodables than others. Some have geodes. Some have some of Wiley's materials. Some have nothing. Some have right. some. It's all over the map. It is all, all over, over the, the map. map. And then the problem also is, so a lot of people still have their leveled books in their classrooms. They have a level I basket, a JK. And they're like, think some people in their journey are like, okay, shit, I'm, I should just take all these books and dump them. But that's not true because those books could be repurposed and used for something else. I think the biggest realization that a lot of people are realizing now is kids are way more than just a damn level. What did a level really tell us? You're a level I. So what? Now we're shifting into in schools into really looking at what skills do kids have and what skills do they need to attain in order to become a more successful reader? So I think. OK, so let's let's hold off there. Let's stop right there. So you said a lot. So let's go to bed. Did you like no, no. it? <laughs> about good or bad, but let's let's just take this apart a bit. So you talked about how you had this moment of realizing that certain books were just um, not all that, that mm -hmm. having these predictable books, um, mm -hmm. you know, where the kids knew what was coming was not really helpful because if you pull the words off the page, they wouldn't be able to read it. So let's start right there. 
because that was part of Tiffany's tweet in the first place. She kind of wanted to differentiate how certain books out of all these levels really should not be in a kindergarten classroom. Let's start right there. So does that mean Tiffany, and then I'm going to jump to Wiley, but Tiffany, does that mean that other books should be in book baskets by levels and kids should still be put into levels? What does that mean? Really good question. So I think she hit on a bunch of topics, one of which is those first levels, right? Like A through D or E typically are the pattern texts. And we know that kids need to be sounding out a lot of words and practicing what they're being taught in phonics. If you just taught them short A and then they're going and reading, I love my mom, I love my dad, they're not getting the practice that they need. Um, however, you know, I think that there might be this pendulum swing going on to we need practice with the phonics, which is good, right? We need decodable texts, which some schools didn't even have that practice material available. But now there's this we need only these types of texts, right? And so I taught first grade. Like when I was teaching first grade, what did we do? Well, we taught a phonics lesson. They go and they practice in a lot of different words and reading and a lot of different ways. And part of that was a decodable text, but they're also reading what we called level text, right? Which are just these readers that are typically with a bunch of phonics patterns, some of which they haven't been taught yet, but they're reading them at these different, you can call them levels. Like maybe they have a level, it's la labeled H for this part of the time in the school year. And I pull it out and we practice it together in our small group. Maybe there's another group that's reading at a bit higher level. Now, Here's the thing is we need students to be in text and reading text because we know time on text matters. I would not give a text that's patterned to a student because they're not using those decoding skills. But we do want to build their statistical learning skills as well, like Wiley was referring to earlier. Like we want them Explain practicing. That. Explain statistical learning. I you, Since you yes. started it, I mean, I know yeah. what you so we want them practicing those phonics skills and a lot of practice with phonics skills, but we also want them practicing flexible decoding. So especially in first grade, when they have their basic phonic skills down, they know short vowels, they know consonants, and they're starting to learn those, um, you know, more complex phonics patterns, they're going to come across a lot of different words. And some of those words, like the word could, C-O-U-L-D, we typically will pre-teach that word, but if they come across it, they try to sound it out cold, cold or something, you know, as they're reading on their own. Um, one of the things that they can do is flex some of those sounds in the word and think mm -hmm. that's this actually makes the word sense, mm -hmm. right. And so that plays into something in the science of reading called shares self-teaching hypothesis is if they know most of the sounds in the word and they know the context of the sentence, they're going to flex those sounds, hopefully, right? And learn some of those phonics skills on their own as they're reading. Um this I think is could be construed very closely with what people are like jumping to this that's three queuing that's three queuing and labeling everything as three queuing now just because we know that's not that's not a good practice don't look at the picture don't tell them to look at the first letter and guess but how students learn and how you know if you saw a name tag and it said ju and it had a splatter on it with a y and it's on your chest 
I'm going to say, oh, it's probably Judy, right? Like our brains fill in those holes. And that's something that happens. This is, I feel like an even bigger conversation, but long story short, I would not say no. Students do not need to say you are level K, only read level K books, right? Obviously, but we do need to be um, providing them with lots of different types of texts to practice their phonic skills in. So Wiley, you've written books on this, on phonics. And so here's a question for you, because I think here's some of the confusion. What Tiffany is saying, they should be exposed to more than just codables. But what about those struggling readers that, you know, they need more reinforcement Mm -hmm. and that, Where's the point where they'll start having their eyes jump all around the page to look for meaning rather than go left to right all through the word? Like, is there a cutoff? Is there some type of number? Like how are teachers supposed to know which children get certain books and then how do you transfer them over or should this be happening simultaneously? It's, it's a great question. And that's one of the conversations we're having now with this whole idea of bridging text. So what Tiffany is talking about is first graders who have a core set of skills already under their belt and understand how the system works and are ready to take on text that's less controlled. It's a really important moment in your reading development. If you really teach children how it works, like we have these letters by themselves and in combination, they stand for sounds. We're going to teach you these sound spellings. They start getting the system and start figuring out things on their own. Uh, And that is a really exciting moment when it happens. I remember it happening for me. I've told this story many times. And when I was a kid, I thought our phonics was a bit slow in first grade. And I was at church and the preacher was reading and he was saying all these words like thee, thou, and doeth. And I was like, that's, those are weird words. I looked at them uh, in the Bible my mom was holding and they all had TH. I figured out TH long before my teacher taught us how to, how to, how to say that, that sound because I understood how the system worked. We're doing a lot of uh, work with our teachers about modeling what Tiffany is talking about and how you flex how you are, there there are spellings, after you get to a certain point, there are spellings that represent multiple sounds and we have to try different things to get to the word. So even modeling how to do that is so critical. We've actually started in kindergarten with the letter S. It can be, or it can be Z. And so when we're writing and when we're reading, you know, we're starting to have these really rich conversations with children. I think the point is, or, or the challenge is, when are children ready? And my answer for that would be not everyone's ready at the same time. And so that's where the teacher's knowledge comes in. Do they have enough under the belt? And we can start We can start going from highly controlled to a little bit less controlled and so on. The other thing that I want to, to say about the decodable text, and here again, I'm a huge advocate of that, but people are getting so hyper-focused in the percentages. It's almost like reading by numbers. And the percentages are getting higher and higher. Like a publisher will say, well, it's 80 because the state requires it. Another publisher says, well, we have 95, we're better. And you look at those texts and not only do they not sound like English, but they have very few irregular high frequency words that children have to master simultaneously. Like when I look at the top 250 words, about 60 of them are irregular. The word the, the word was, the word, they need to know those as well. And they're not getting enough of that 
in some of the decodables that are out there. That has me very, very worried. And so sometimes we need other texts to meet those needs because our decodables aren't aren't filling in all the all the gaps that we have in terms of what texts need to do for our young readers. Yeah. There, I mean, I think there are different types of decodables, some better than others. Oh, sure. And some um ways of approaching it, some better than others as well. So, Judy, in listening to this, you know, you're in a district where there are lots of challenges and a lot of kids are coming to school, perhaps not with the same type of foundational skills that you would see in, let's say, a high performing district with fewer problems, you know, and, um, you know, fewer uh, needs, let's say. So in your district, when kids are starting out, do you see that there's more of a need to stay with decodables longer? Because like you said, there's no set number. Maybe there are certain classrooms or certain schools where maybe it is important to stay with decodables a little bit longer. Because if you jump to something too quickly, then they're not going to have that confidence to think that this is um, a code. Do you know what I mean? Like they're just going to think, well, I have to guess my way through it. What are your thoughts on that? So I think that, you know, figuring out what type of book to use is why it's so important to train our teachers to be able to tackle these kind of issues, regardless of what curriculum or program comes their way is empowering our teachers. Like for instance, today I was working with a kid after school and she's been working with um, decodables with me for a very long time. And all of a sudden I went into my old baskets, Faith, my reading recovery collection. I don't have them leveled anymore, but they're all in there. And I took out a book because I knew it was time. She knows the six syllable types pretty well, but I've been using control text for so long that the oral language is sounding so choppy and I wanted to give her a chance to work with something that is more life language, right? So I actually experimented today for the first time. I took my pen and I actually made little scoops under phrases in in the text. And she's like, Miss Judy, how could you be writing in the book? And I'm like, don't worry about it. I said, you know what? I'm helping you work with phrasing and fluency today because you're ready for working on these skills a little deeper. And guess what? I said, 30 years later, when Miss Judy's probably still going to be working with kids, there's going to be another kid that needs that same support. And it was such an amazing experience because I was like, should I do the decodable today or should I just try this book? And it's kind of like, you know, it's a balancing act. I think people are so afraid and kind of like walking on eggshells now and so afraid, you know, the F-bomb is going all over the place, the fidelity word, and then <laughs> it's for curriculum versus program. Everybody thinks that, you know, um, HMH and expositionary learning and wisdom that they're um, curriculums when in fact they're programs and we're supposed to be pulling out what needs to be done for our students, but we're forgetting to think about the lear learners in front of us. And when you said, Judy, thinking about your schools, what are you seeing? So, you know, I think 
you know, I live in a wealthy town, Greenwich, Connecticut, and I'm seeing a lot of the kids here in 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 the suburbs have the same exact problems. I know. Um, I'm very I, aware of that. I work with kids in the suburbs. Yeah. What I meant, what I want no, to clarify, I know, I know, I, I, know. Wanted, I want to clarify yeah. this. So I'm not saying you don't see this in other places. I'm saying that in some situations, you right. might have to stay in those books longer. Right. For certain kids, like kids, I think in the books without. Right. But wait a minute, let me finish. Kids yeah. coming in you know, that have not had strong preschool experiences with a lot of letter sound connections, maybe you need to be in that space a little bit longer. And I and I think even out here in the suburbs, like I was asking the kid today, and she's like, nobody really even reads with me. And, and it's just crazy. I think that's my biggest fear right now is, a, it's a balancing act. A lot of teachers are struggling with what their literacy block looks like. And I think it comes back to what Wiley says. And I saw Wiley like two or three days ago, and I had the privilege of having a little chit chat with him. And it felt so good because I, I adore you, Wiley. Okay. Um, the application piece of giving kids that chance to practice is so important. And I have to say... And I'm probably going to take some heat for it. I saw more kids practicing during my balanced literacy days. And maybe some of the texts that were being used were bad. But I saw more kids reading. And I saw more teachers listening to kids read. Now, we know running records, blah, 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 time-consuming, <laughs> so many bad things. But at least we were listening to kids read. Now we have the tool, the oral reading fluency, but people are doing it more for like compliance, beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of year. And we're missing the boat. We're not giving kids enough practice. We're not listening to kids read. Um, the school I'm working at, we're using a lot of uh, geodes. So that's been an interesting experience for me. They're fascinating. The stories are engaging. They're 80% decodable. So for a lot of our students, we're finding we project them on the screen as a warm-up, like a shared reading experience. We're trying to give access to on-grade level content material. Now, the kids are seeing them for a couple of days. They're making games. They're loving seeing connected text. They're loving... I thought you said they were too hard for a lot of kids. That's what I'm getting to. I'm getting there. So as a shared reading experience, it's working for a lot of kids. But when kids are working independently, a lot of the kids still, they are too challenging for them. So that's going to be a balancing act because I kind of feel for kids that are in the earliest stages of learning how to read, I have decodables at home that may be much better suited for those kids for their small group instruction. Like Faith, you told me about the, I think they're the primary phonics. I think those are my favorite. The so ones with like tab yeah. and the robot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Judy, so I think you you like hit on something really important, though, like that when you just have one decodable that matches your weekly phonic skill or something like that, kids don't get the time on text that they need. Right. And so, yeah. like, for example, when I was teaching first grade, we had a decodable story for that phonic skill, you know, AI, uh -huh. right? but then we had multiple level texts and so you kids are getting that practice but then they're going back and doing partner reading and independent reading and you can come at me all you want for independent reading but if they're actually reading the text in front of them 
that is what is going to make the most difference. Not if they're reading these isolated words on a worksheet and one decodable story a week, right? We they need to be immersed in connected text. That's and I don't think I don't think uh, in my in my experience in the field, and I love my building. My 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 principal is going to meet me tomorrow morning. He knows Wiley. He's a big Wiley fan. I wanted him on here today, but he's more of an introvert, so he's not here with me right now. I wish he was, but um. He knows that the application piece is a priority, but how do you make it all happen, right? We're being told that we have to do these knowledge building uh, programs for a certain amount of time. So it's like a balancing act. Is it a 50-50? And I, I mentioned it to Wiley when I saw him outside. Is it 50-50? Or if your data is saying, you know, some of our data is glaring right now. It's saying, help me, help me. I can't read. I'm not transferring. Wiley, why don't you jump in and comment on that? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. My, my biggest concern is not enough uh, time on task with reading and writing. So for me, the power of a phonics lesson is how much time you pick up a book or pick up a pencil. It's all in the application. And most of these programs have only one or two decodables. It is not enough. A decodable is a practice tool and it's designed to get you to fluency quickly. And so they need a lot of intensive time. If you just have one, I mean, you could do things with it for many days, but you're beating it to death. I want lots of different stories in their hands that they can be reading. And I'm so afraid we're going to be doing all this great phonics stuff. And if they're not picking up books and not picking up pencils, it's going to fall flat. I've seen it in so many schools. Yeah. When, when people so were doing in, reading, they had tons of books in there. Now they pull them out and there's like a book. It's not enough. It depends on the district. So I just want to say, so the district where I'm doing um, some consulting work in on Long Island, um, Lindbergh School District, they adopted a new phonics program, Sounds Right. And part of what they did was they invested in a whole decodable library, not from just one company, multiple companies, um, fiction, nonfiction, lots and lots of books, lots of choices, um, high quality, really um, well thought out books. And so the kids are not just with one book, they have multiple choices. And I think that's a very important point that you don't just have, like, if you're working on you know, um, AI, you have that book on AI, the one book, and you stay with that forever, you know, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. You were talking <laughs> about artificial intelligence, Faith. You what? Yeah. The AI? I thought you were talking about artificial No, no, the, um, the um, AI team. So I just pulled that out as an example that I, and I know what you mean. It could be that one book. So I think it is very important to have a variety of books to choose from and with different um, content, because some of them are really well written. And there are all different types of decodables. But even at that point, I'm like, once kids get the idea, they have enough code knowledge Get them into other books, you know, bring it, bring it back to decodables if you want to teach something about something specific, but then bring it into other types of reading. And I don't know if that's happening everywhere. Um, 
I'll add to that point, Faith. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. Those decodable books that you're talking about, I think a book is only decodable based on the phonic scope and sequence it was written to, right? So if you're getting a bunch of different types of decodable text or you're saying, this is a decodable text, I'm going to buy it from my classroom, it's not and and maybe it's marketed as 95% decodable or 80 it's not going to be that percentage if you're not following the exact scope and sequence of that text. Yeah. So I think there's also like some misunderstandings about what is you can't just say these are decodable texts and then like use them with this curriculum because they're not going to be decodable for that curriculum. Right. Some match up very well with the phonic sequence that um you know you have and others, not so much, but you know, that's where the teaching comes in. If you have some words that aren't exactly fitting in, you don't say, well, I can't use this book. Or, well, does that make it a level text, Faith? <laughs> okay. No, I don't think it makes it a level text because we're not keeping kids. I think the idea of the level is the gradient system. That's the problem. The gradient system of keeping kids, you're a B, you're a it's D. It's like a emotional tone. Now you're talking about leveling kids. Oh. You're not talking about leveling texts. But, but that's what ends up happening, though. The book, and it becomes synonymous with that. That's okay, so I guess my point that I was making my tweet wasn't so much that we should go back to leveling kids. I know it's that right. we should have these texts in our classroom because what I was noticing was we only need a decodable text. So then they either have one or they say, I'm just going to buy any decodable text that look good from this curriculum because I like this curriculum. They have decodable <laughs> texts. And then they're not getting text aligned to their phonic skills to begin with, you know, and the like Wiley was saying, it's not like English <laughs> at that point. We need kids to have experiences with a diverse range of texts. And Which one, yes, no, we because were talking that, about mean, just that period, you know, after they have basic phonic skills. We're not talking about at the beginning of kinder to do right. that. But, but it's also it comes down to like. Tiffany, I agree with what you're saying. It's a balancing act, right? Kids are individual people. And, you know, sometimes you may have a scope and sequence, but there's kids that are struggling to keep up with that scope and sequence. And that's when it's a fine, fine balancing act. It's okay to take a book that has CVC words for that kid when you're working with them. And that's where we have to become more in tune with the science and understanding the what and the why and that intentionality piece, rather than just saying, no, we need to follow the scope and sequence and we need, we can't shift. You know, we have to still be flexible. I think that as we're shifting, we're forgetting that, you know, it comes down to like what Tim Rosinski said, it is also an art, right? It's a balancing act a little bit. And teacher knowledge is important, but also knowledge of our students. And I think that shifting towards thinking about skills versus letter A, B, C, and D is very powerful because we're getting to know our students on a much deeper level. But then what do our libraries look like? Are they still book shopping? Like book shopping was a very special time in the Balanced Literacy Day. They should still be book shopping, but maybe it should be skills baskets and some interest-based books. I don't see that joy of shopping for that decodable text that much. I'm and so, I want to see it more. I want to see kids enjoying things. But Faith, I also had one thing to say to you. So you mentioned Limbrook, and I know, and I met your team there, and what a passionate bunch of people. And I'm 
happy because I know you're seeing success. And I saw the writing samples that you guys projected on the screen where kindergartners are writing sentences. And, and that's just very real, powerful. Real it's not, yeah. But, but Faith, I know you and I had a private conversation where I asked you how well, you got private. Why are you sharing it? <laughs> because it's an because it's an important one. Because it could impact it could impact lives, and that's why we're here, right? We're here to hopefully impact the world in a I positive way. Tell me what is it? So I asked you what your literacy block looks like there, right? Mm-hmm. I said, how do you squeeze in all that knowledge building and whatever? And unlike New York City and a lot of other places where they're mandating certain programs and calling them curriculum, you said that that's not the case in Long Island. So you you guys have more time to devote to the foundational skill piece of learning how to read and write. Okay, right? so let, let me just stop right there. So. They definitely are working on foundational skills carefully. But what I said is the district I'm in is not using a core program. We don't have to choose from one of those three programs that New York City has. So it's a little different on Long Island. So where you, your districts in New York City, you have either wit and wisdom or into reading or EL. Here, we don't have that yet, right? Where there's any mandate for a certain program. And we're happy about that. Very happy about that. Why wouldn't you be happy when you showed me on the screen, the kids have skills that exceed expectations. And, And they're still getting lots and lots of other things too. But instead of trying to work with a program that we're pulling apart, they know what they need to do. And that's part of a curriculum. Having a curriculum is different from just buying a box program off the shelf and having to figure this out. There's more flexibility here, at least right now. That's that's where we are. So I think some of the problems you're experiencing is you have this core program. You also are using foundations on top of a core program. And how do you get all this in in one day? So I'm going to turn it over to Wiley. You're in the city, Wiley. You see schools all over the place. The answer here, because people like in Judy's situation, they really are confused right now. Like it's not just time. in my school, though. I said, like, I, I said, yeah. I know it's not just in your school. I said, yeah. well, you know, because you're in the city, and it's like you have these mandates, and it's, yeah, and and they're trying to figure this out. So, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, every school I go in, the 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 amount of time they spend on different parts of the literacy block. Varies. You know, I'm in I'm in a lab site where our our task this year is to look at the materials that everyone in this particular district, you know, New York's divided by all these sub-districts, and I'm in one in Queens. We're in phase two. So everyone will have to be using the new curriculum next year. But we have a lab site that we're working in and a small cohort of schools that are also using the materials. And we are just analyzing them to death. You know, we are going in every routine. Uh 
what does it look like? How does it compare to the latest research? How are teachers applying it? What about the, the pacing of that part of the lesson? How much time are students on task? How much are they reading? You know, all the, where it's very surgical what we're doing and then working with the cohort to scale that up so that then we can work through the issues and next year scale it up to the whole district. So that's kind of where we are. We, we have, it requires us to have more time than some schools do for our foundational skills in K-1 and 2. We are spending more time doing that because it's such a foundational piece. Judy? Yeah. So, but it, and then as we get through into three, four, and five, we don't, we don't have a, as much time for that work. Uh, we still need that work. We're, we're doing word study and morphology and things like that, but we don't need a, as huge amount of time as we do in K-1-2. Uh, but we still have students, obviously, who have some fluency issues and, and all of that. So it, it really varies by grade how much time that we are spending on those different pieces. So Tiffany, it, yeah, so Tiffany, Wiley mentioned something just now about scaling it up. And that's exactly what we're doing in Lindbrook. So it started in kindergarten. And I love your expression, like surgical, like really looking and digging in. So not just spraying, you know, and praying, spray and pray, like really doing the work. We are timing for every portion of the lesson. How do we get the maximum out of this, this amount of time that we have? And we're looking at the choreography of a lesson. Like when are they on the carpet? When are they at the seats? When are they talking? When are they using everything about engagement and the, We're counting the number of words they're reading, the number of words they're writing at different moments to see how we can maximize the minutes we do have so that we can scale that up. Why don't I have a Wiley by my side? How do I get you? (laughs) (laughs) It's intensive work, but it's it's worth it. I mean, these lessons are now so fast-paced, so rigorous. Good. Students love it. That's the thing. They They do love it. They love it. Yes, they do love it. Tiffany, is there any research that you know of that really speaks to this idea of scaling up, looking at time, looking at trying to figure out the balancing act with evidence behind it instead of just, you know, a bunch of people saying, okay, I think this will work. You know, is do you know, because I know you're up on everything. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about that. Um, well, I think the most relevant research here, and while you might you probably know about this, is um, Carol Connor's research on when they looked at, like, for example, a first grade classroom. They saw what type of instruction was making the most difference for what type of student. Like when the student came in who was low in decoding. They did better and made more gains with teacher-led instruction focused on word recognition, whereas in a student who came into first grade with high word recognition made more gains with more student-led learning that focused on vocab, you know, these types of things. And I think um, it's like Wiley's saying, like, it, as paying attention to responses, like actually how many um, students in a class are responding, writing the words down, how many words are they actually reading on a page? And Faith, you made a great um, point earlier about um, having students write. I think that's a huge thing because if they're actually, especially in kindergarten, like in first grade, 
writing, they're having to use invented spelling. They're having to apply their phonic skills. They're upping their own, you know, decoding by using their, their phonic skills to respond to a text or a prompt. And you can do that in science or social throughout the day. So anyway, that's a little off topic, but yeah, I'd recommend Carol Connor's work around that. Yeah. So I think it's important, like you said, throughout the day, all right, throughout the day and looking at content areas. So we have this issue now. There, there are leveled books. There are decodable books. There are predictable books. And then you have these core programs. And the core programs have science passages and social studies passages. And then, of course, they have science in, you know, built into the day. And they have social studies built into the day. There's a lot there. You know, there's just a lot going on. Judy, do you think that maybe throughout the day, some things are being ignored that perhaps, you know, we're pulling things out to make room for things that maybe are in high impact, high leverage type things? Because, you know, if you are thrown so many different things, what are you left to do? I think, you know, it really takes looking at that literacy block, but also thinking about the intention, intention, what's the word again? Intentionality. <laughs> yeah, I know it's nine, nine thirty, 9.53 at night. This is way past my bedtime. Um, like, so I was even telling Wiley when I saw him. So my principal was like, Judy, we're not just going to make a decision because we're going to make a decision based off of feelings. We're going to actually see exactly what's happening in those classrooms. So I decided, okay, I can't just tell my teachers this is what you should be doing. They asked me to model a lesson. They sat there watching my lesson, timing it, because a lot of the teachers were like, no, there's no way you could get through the whole foundations lesson in 25 minutes. And I was like, you absolutely can. And we've been watching the teachers in the field. By the end of the lesson, kids sometimes look like they want to pass out already. They're like done. My lesson, like Wiley said, was brisk. It was intentional. And my principal, who's falling in love with the science, looked at the tracker with me and he said, Judy, there's a great noticing. In all these trackers in, the, in, in our building, I'm noticing kids are doing really well with sounds. We're improving with spelling words but they're bombing on writing sentences. So why are we spending so much time on the things that the kids aren't struggling with? We need to get more involved with our sentences, make sure that we get into sentences during each lesson, because that's a bigger bang for your buck. That's going to get you closer to breaking the reading code, because that if you could write a sentence, then you could read your sentence, and so, your principal, so your principal is actually thinking, pull certain things out. So blown away. I was so blown away because he's, I don't know if he's as far in his journey as mine, but when he said that and I explained it to the teachers, now I was armed with something that was logical. It wasn't like they, you know, a lot of teachers felt like, oh my God, why are we cutting the time? This is what they need the most. 
But what well, is your gee, those sentences too, like that you're talking about within phonics? It's it's obviously like using those skills they've been taught and implying g- great things. But what I was talking about was like having them use invented spelling even to respond to text. So we just re- did. I just did a read aloud, right? You know the story. Okay, well, what do you? Th- how do you think Janie felt when her mom? forgot to pack her lunch. Right. Let's go back. Here's maybe at the beginning of the year, here's a sentence stem. Janie felt, and they write that and then they finish the sentence. Right. So it's not even guided. Like I want you to write the cat sat on the, on right. the bin. It's, not it's like, it's not, a right. And it, it's, right. it's responding to writing. It's right. using it to. Yeah. And, and that's the powerful thing too. And I'm like explaining to my teachers, those things that we do in foundations now you're writing sentences in your HMH. You let those kids learn that they can take some of that learning and now maybe write something that's more connected with, you know, maybe they were able to tap out a few more words and spell it right. Maybe they were able to like. Wiley has something he wants to say. One of the biggest changes we're making to foundations at the school is adding a significant amount of writing. We are doing hand, you know, handwriting fluency. We're saying the sounds, they're writing the letters. Yes. We are writing, writing fluency. Why are you not giving him a cheers button? We're doing education. We are writing about our decodables. We're doing syntax work with those sentences, building more co- like there's we're trying to increase the amount of time children are picking up a pencil. It is, I think, so underutilized picking up the pencil during a phonics lesson. We get so much data. I, I would I got uh, sticky notes, yeah. sticky notes, yeah. Wiley. They're magical. You put them in the middle of the kids' tables and you let them oh. write notes to each other. Oh, You're I encouraging them to pass Fun. notes. And let yeah. me tell you how much they write. Yes. That's that's yeah. wonderful. That That is interesting. And I love that you said the writing. So one of the things I think we're most proud in Lindbrook is their writing. Like their writing at Judy Saw, it's, it's just beyond. It, it's really... Um, quite advanced. And that's because the foundation is so We're working on handwriting fluency, working on really that proper letter formation. So it's automatic. All the basics need to be automatic. And then you'll start seeing other things develop as well. So let's try to tie this up now because it is late. Um, I'd love for each one of you, Tiffany, Wiley, and then I'll come back to us. But if we haven't said something that you feel that you think is important as a last thought, please say it now because I want to leave people feeling like there's closure here. Like we're leaving them with a message about this, you know, conflating level books and predictable texts and and when to use the codables, like any just final last words. We'll start with Tiffany. Sure. So I'd say um, you're making me say one thing. Predictable text, pattern text, not great for practice. Decodable text, obviously targeted practice for phonics skills. But we want to focus on getting students time reading text, reading text aloud to partners, reading text aloud to beanie babies, reading text aloud to the teacher. And so however you're getting those texts, whether you're calling them leveled texts or you're getting a bunch of different, you know, texts in your classroom, 
get students reading, right? And so that's that's my final message. Okay. Wiley? Yeah, I mean, I would say amen. And I would say significantly, significantly increase the amount of time children are picking up a book and picking up a pencil during a phonics lesson. Yeah, I, I could tell you um, the phonics lessons that we use, they are writing the whole time. They all have dry erase boards and markers. The whole lesson is them writing. So whatever they read, they write. Whatever they write, they read. It's completely interactive. Um, Judy, last thoughts. Be short and brief tonight. Are you surprised, Faith? <laughs> Look at your data. Your data is talking to you. Don't ignore it. If your data is saying kids are doing great on something but need support on something else, make those shifts. Intentionality is key. And uh, application, application, application. In real estate, it's location, location, location. In reading, it's application, application, application. Okay. And my last thoughts are, we have to be smart about this. And instead of just, um, you know, putting people down for you know, saying something like Tiffany brought up something and it was like people just went crazy about what you were saying. I think we have to go deeper than a tweet and have these discussions. As Wiley said, we needed a discussion. It, it can't just be said in one sentence because people misinterpret, people, people hear what they want to hear. And I think it's very important to leave people with the right message. And like I said before, I think Judy and I are truly truth seekers here. Um, and I think there is this line now of people wanting the truth, but at the same time, wanting to kind of support what's comfortable in their world whether that world was from balanced literacy or now this SOR, you know, world where, you know, God forbid you mentioned something that might not fit in within the schema of their belief system, it becomes just like blown up. So I want to leave people with the last thought. We need to really have these discussions and listen to people from all sides with lots of experiences and coming from evidence and science and not just speaking out of emotion. That's my last thought. So Judy, hit it. All right, one last thing. <laughs> we did not pull the bullshit button on Tiffany or Wiley even once tonight. This was a great conversation. Follow us on Facebook, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. Follow us on Instagram, The Literacy View. Follow us on our YouTube, The Literacy View. Subscribe. Follow us on Faith. Where else do they follow us? Follow, follow, follow. Oh, wait. Apple, <laughs> Pod Apple Podcast, Spotify, and coming soon. Faith and Judy are launching their wonderful No BS website coming soon. Stay tuned. The biggest gift you could give to us is liking and sharing the work that we're doing. We're trying to make a difference one view at a time. Exactly. And write those comments and reviews 
Only if they're positive. <laughs> no, we, we, we get some crappy ones too. We could take it. All right. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you so much, Wiley, Tiffany. Um, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night.